Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. When I was 9, 10, I got to meet all my American cousins. Some of them didn't speak Korean at all. I didn't speak English. Suddenly, this world opens up. You meet people related to you living a completely different life. And I just remember the energy, some openness, kind of free to be. That gave me a taste. And so we started having conversations as a family. What could that mean? If this is what you want, let's try it. So we picked up everything, left everything behind and moved from Korea to Canada. Hello, my name is Min Jae Orms and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Minjay Orms, the CMO of Visible, which is the future of phone service. And we didn't talk a lot about phone service, did Not we? Not at all. <laughs> we talked about donuts. Korean donuts. Korean donuts. We talked about childhood snacks. And we talked a lot about Minjay's experience growing up in a different country, coming into a new one, and moments of her life that have really shaped her and how she's rose to the occasion in those moments. Yeah, you know, we get a lot of flack from certain people, aka my sister, about <laughs> talking only to marketers. And we don't. And Minjay is a marketer. But while we didn't talk anything about our day jobs, it's so clear. What's interesting about the field of marketing is it's really about human understanding and communication when you do it well. Mm -hmm. And someone like Minjay, who has had her feet in multiple worlds, fitting in and not fitting in and choosing to fit in and where not to fit in. I think it gives her like a unique lens and an angle. And to be clear, I don't know much about her marketing work, <laughs> but it was a marketing buddy, Bob, that connected us. And I can understand why she's clearly a rock star in the space and it has yeah. nothing to do with her work. It has to do with what she brings to everything she does. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when I think about career, her career, and also just her own personal presence and her style. The company that she works with was voted one of the most innovative companies by Fast Company. And 
And when you hear Minjay's story and you also hear, and if you were to Google her and take a look at her choices with style and fashion and other things, I think she really does break the mold and is a very innovative, not just modern minority on our show, but just person overall. Yeah. So step right up and we hope you enjoy our conversation with our friend Minjay. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me. So you're kind of infamous. So (laughs) (laughs) I guess the real question, maybe you don't get that often. Where are you from? Well, how much time do we have? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Someone literally said that to us. (laughs) (laughs) So I was born and raised in Seoul, Korea. I lived there until I was 13. And then I moved to Vancouver, Canada. So I am Canadian on paper. However, only about three years of my youth was actually spent on the soils of Vancouver, Canada. But you got the health card. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like myself, my kids are dual citizens. So like, I'm gonna just tell them, like, don't ask me, you know, I've never done anything for you. (laughs) So yeah, so I'm Canadian on paper, but I have been living here in the States for the past 20 years, having come down here for college. And so I guess... You know, before we get into who you are today and kind of the things you've experienced along the way, can you tell us a story from growing up either on the other side of <laughs> of the border? <laughs> the border or the ocean? Or the ocean. <laughs> What's the more embarrassing story, Minjay? Right. <laughs> what? Oh man. I well, if we're going with the embarrassing route, gosh, I Okay, so when I first moved to Vancouver, which I was 13 years old, and let's just all admit that being 13 sucks everywhere, right? Anyone who says that it didn't, uh-huh. when they say, lying. oh, my teen years were, yeah, no, yeah, I'm right. I don't yeah. like you. I can't be Yeah, exactly. Friend. I know exactly who you were. So <laughs> <laughs> being 13 and then being in a whole new city, and I went to a high school, public high school that had a very tight-knit community. Everybody who went there knew each other since they were born. I went to the same kindergarten and all this stuff. And I didn't speak the language. So it was just like many, many layers of trying to figure out how to be a teen, how to speak the language, how to fit in the culture. Was Korean your first language? Yes, it was. Yeah. So a large part of right what one does when you're dropped into a different situation when you're an immigrant or, or whatnot is to observe what everybody else is doing and try to mirror either what they're doing what they're saying to fit in. So a lot of my time was spent doing that, I would say, in in my high school years. So I remember one year, all of the cool girls (laughs) in my high school were sometimes showing up wearing a tie and more of a former pants. And like there was kind of a look, there was this wardrobe that would show up once in a while but I couldn't tell why and I couldn't tell if there was a reason or if it was just kind of a social code or they were just wearing stuff that was cool for everybody. And I figured, okay, maybe I could try that too. So I remember going to Gap and I bought this tie and I bought this shirt and pair of bright red pants and and remember wearing that to school. And then somebody had asked me, oh, I didn't realize that you had joined the, I can't remember what the group was called, but there was a group of people who <laughs> were- a band called Panic at the Disco or My Well, I wish it was kind of that cool. No, it was, it was literally like a group of girls who were supporting the boys' basketball team. Like it was kind of like uh-huh. a businessy role <laughs> that they played. And so- 
the pattern and the reason why it was so uneven and like they would just show up was because they were worrying that on the days that the team had home games. That's so funny. <laughs> How would I know that? So I showed up and I was like, oh, I really just want to be invisible right now. Even though <laughs> up until that moment, I wanted to be visible and right fit in and I'm cool too. But <laughs> that was so mortifying. <laughs> That's very funny. I thought you were going to go the direction of it was some band that everybody was following or something like that. I wish. I wish. <laughs> yes. That's what you tell yourself now. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you looked very, very stylish back then. Oh, well, thank you. Napper, <laughs> even. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? For a while, I didn't really have an idea of what that could be. Because if you think about, and I'm sure you've had lots of conversations with other folks who may have had a similar childhood as mine, which is to say, I grew up in Korea where there's usually a very like singular definition of what success looked like. You do well in school, you take these exams, and then you get to the next school, you take the exams really well and so forth. And then even as far as career tracks go, there were very specific sets of things that you would end up doing if you were top of the class. So yeah, those things and the expectations around them were super clear to me, but I didn't really connect between, well, I'm a top student at school and I like school and I'm a model student in some ways, but how that then translated to what I wanted to do or what I could be. So I feel like for the most of my childhood, I have that vague sense of like, I'm doing well, like I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to be doing to be like a productive part of the society. But I didn't necessarily have an idea of, therefore, I want to be a lawyer or anything like that. It's really- Let me me flip that. What What did mom and dad want you to be? Well, my mom and dad were very progressive for Korean parents. And so I like to tell the story of how my dad came to be an architect. So he's fifth out of seven children. And so the the family had taken a portfolio strategy, right? So every one of them has to have kind of a different career, but hopefully each one of them very successful so that as a family, you have a way in which you've succeeded and be able to take care of each other. So out of my aunts, one's a lawyer, one's a doctor, another's a professor, another's a journalist. And then by the time they got to my dad... He told me only, he's passed away some years ago, but before he died, he told me, he's like, I actually wanted to be a lawyer. And I was like, what? I can't picture you as a lawyer or a judge. Like, how did that even come about? Why didn't you become a lawyer? And he was like, because my oldest sister was already a lawyer and a judge. (laughs) So it was taken. What's funny funny about that is, so my dad, he's an architect. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we talked about this. Yeah, yeah, growing up, it was like so much of his identity to me was my dad, the architect with the drafts table and his great handwriting and his meticulous nature and all of these things. And I remember the high school years when you start talking about what you're going to go study for school and I wanted to go into art or architecture and they were like, no way, Jose. I was like, well, why, dad? (laughs) you're an architect. Why'd you become an architect? Thinking I'm about to win this argument. I'm on my way to architecture school, right? And he was like, because I didn't get into med school. And I'm like, what? Oh, wow. (laughs) It was just like very practical, matter of fact. Well, the next thing you do, obviously, is be an architect. And I'm like, (laughs) totally. What? (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. No, I mean, that's exactly kind of what happened to my dad, too. And I mean, and he was a really good architect. Like, he 
one of his biggest legacy is he designed the ski resort in Korea that the last Winter Olympics was held at. Oh, cool. that's so cool. Yeah, that's yeah. Really it's kind of cool to be able to right, tell your kids like that's the legacy of your grandfather and that's what he did. And so he was really good at it. But it's like another one of those things where I'm like, man, what would it have been like if he actually chose the first career that he thought he would like to? I mean, maybe he would be bad at it, but it was just kind of one of those brute force mentality of someone who was a child during the Korean War and had to look at kind of one success in the context of the entire family and do the best with what you are given. And so, of course, he made it work and he became the best in his field. So to answer your earlier question about like, what did they expect me to be? I am actually still very grateful and surprised that my mom and dad didn't necessarily pass that kind of expectation to me when it comes comes to kind of like the choice of schools or the studies or the profession that I have. In fact, the reason or one of the reasons why, why my family moved from Korea to Canada was because I wanted to go. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. Wow. What, yeah. Why? No, that conversation. What, yeah. What did you, you just came to <laughs> So... Okay, so earlier I mentioned that, right, I didn't necessarily have an idea of like specific jobs or professions that I aspire to be. And then around the same time, when I was 9, 10, I started to be exposed to how my American cousins were growing up. So I have a ton of cousins on my dad's side. I have maybe like 10 cousins on my mom's side. And when I first visited the States, it was in Los Angeles and it was one of those like family reunions. So I got to meet a lot of them for the first time. Some of them didn't speak Korean at all. I didn't speak English. And so it was- it How was, old were you back then that, during that reunion? I want to say that first trip was like, I was eight or nine. Okay. Okay. So it suddenly, right, this world opens up in which you see people, meet people who are related to you, but they're living a completely different life. And I just remember- it wasn't even that they were in their high school too. Like I'm the youngest of, or my brother and I are on the younger, youngest side of the cousin kind of spectrum. And it's not like they had a job or anything that I could look at and be like, oh my God, that's so cool. But it was just the energy. It was a vibe of how they were behaving, relating with each other. And there seemed to be some openness and like kind of free to be, although I'm sure they were dealing with other kinds of things in their lives too. So that kind of gave me a taste of, oh, man, maybe growing up isn't this one way that I thought it would be. And so we started having conversations as a family just around that and what could that mean. And I know there are probably other family or business reasons that they didn't necessarily share with me when I was, you know, by the time I was 13 and we actually moved. But my dad shut his business down. My mom had always been at home and supporting the family. And they decided, okay, like if this is what you want, let's try it. So we moved, we picked up everything, they left everything behind and and came to Vancouver. Wow. That's a big move. Yeah. <laughs> and then so so you're 13, you're now in this school, you're wearing ties and shirts yes. and red yes. pants. Mm-hmm. Yep. What were things that you had to do back then to fit in? I think there were lots of everyday choices as well as what felt at the time like more mon- monumental, like risk-taking, like the tie and the pants outfit. <laughs> But the there were a lot of cues right around the social circles, who's hanging out with whom and and what even classes do you choose to take if you have a choice? What do they say? What are the expressions? And so I think there was just a lot of 
observation going on. But there was a little part of me that was super naive too. Like I just didn't know what I didn't know. So when we moved, we moved on October 30th, 1993. And the reason I remember this is because the day after was Halloween. And I didn't know what Halloween was. Somebody told me about it. I think one of my neighbors who happened to be my math teacher. And so I was like, what? You get to go around the stranger's houses and get candy? Like, sign me up. <laughs> That's every day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, this is great. Amazing. Canada. So my brother, who at the time was six years old, I don't even know. I probably dressed him up in some like cardboard and garbage right. that we <laughs> found. And I only knew how to say like, hi, we're your neighbor and trick or treat. And thank you, probably. So we just went around the neighborhood, we got candy. And it was such a innocent and exciting start to an immigrant journey where, wow, like this country is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Free candy at every door. You just have to say these things and thank you. So that's kind of how it got started. So even when I was in the process of getting into schools and I went to public school in Vancouver, and so getting into the school wasn't the problem, right? Because I lived in the zip code and et cetera. But there was a question of, well, you don't speak English. So technically with the school year differences, like school in in Korea starts in March, school in in North America starts in September. So there was kind of that weirdness and timing also. But the fact that I didn't have the foundation of the language skills in itself. So the school counselor was, I mean, very logical recommendation, but I was really hurt by it. They were like, you should take a year back and get into eighth grade versus going into ninth grade. And so I fought that. I just didn't think that would be the right decision. I didn't want to fall behind. And so I said, I understand what you're saying here, but can I just do it? Can I take like hybrid classes? In fact, I was like, I will see your suggestion of putting me back by a year and up it by, I want to take French. (laughs) (laughs) And, And they let me. I mean, so, so in some ways, there was a bit of a risk taking on their side and there was definite naive approach to what I didn't know I didn't know, but not just just kind of the sense of I don't want to fall behind. I know I'm behind, but I don't want to fall further behind. And so I ended up doing eighth and ninth grade as a hybrid and caught up. So things like that, I don't know that I was like so insightful and brave to have taken that on, but it was just kind of more like a sense of survival. Like I know I'm behind here, but I, I don't want to fall more behind that really drove me to ask for the kinds of things that I'm not sure if I had a bit more of an insight and knowledge and being grounded that I would have been able to push for. That's so interesting. Were your parents involved in that discussion at all with the school? Yes, but my sense of memory around that was they kind of let me say my piece, which is cool. They didn't necessarily say, oh, hold up, you really should listen to these people and stay back, but they kind of let me do it and then see what happens out of that. And so I think that's probably actually, now that you're asking me, Sharon, a good illustration of the kinds of approach that my parents took. I mean, they moved us (laughs) to a whole new country. (laughs) That's why, and that's why I asked, because I was just thinking you initiated the decision to move, right? And then you arrive in the country you made your own decision that no, you were not going to get held back in school. You didn't care what the administrators or the adults said, and you really fought for yourself. And it's an interesting dynamic between you and your parents of how they kind of naturally deferred to you 
just trusting, yeah. trusting your own instinct, even though you were a child. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. Yeah. How would you say you're similar or different from that little kid negotiating for a French class? <laughs> Oof. I think, so I would say more recently, and I'm talking about more the last five to 10 years, it's coming back or or that level of confidence, perhaps, yeah. or I don't care, this is who I am, and this is how I like to live my life. And in some ways, and this took practice, right, frankly, but I think hearing no from somebody is actually a, one of my biggest drivers of wanting to actually get that done, not just in the spirit of like, you're wrong, and I'm right. But it's it's when there's a barrier in front of me, it's usually moments in which my brain is kind of working like, okay, so what what are the different ways in which we can go about it and not stopping at that, which wasn't always how I operated. And what, what changed that? What, why now versus not earlier than now? So when I was 30 years old, I feel like I was back to being 13 again. And so this is when I was at Google and YouTube. And so I had this kind of crazy life-changing experience of, wow, now I'm suddenly surrounded by so many smart people and they're so motivated. Everybody knows what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing here. How did I get here? All of that. And there were some times I was challenged because of my presence and my leadership style, which tend to be more in the, or which used to be more in the type of let my work speak for itself. I'm going to stay in the background. I'm not going to fight somebody and more in the background and the polite, (laughs) I suppose, style that, that it was perceived as you're not strong enough. And so having received that feedback, I still wanted to be there, right? So that's like the little spark of 13-year-old coming back being like, no, no, I will take my French class. But in the work environment, I had to figure out how am I going to do that? Because just like wanting to be here alone is not going to get me there because clearly there's this perception, whether it is fair or not, that started to form around how I showed up at work that signaled to people she's not a strong leader. So I think the blessing in my life has always been the people. And I had enough people around me who were friends, colleagues, coaches. I took all the resources that Google and YouTube gave me to improve my presentation skills, like speaking, all of that, because I figured, well, I can always get better at that. And why not utilize the help that they're giving me? But at the same time, there were people who grounded me in what was a perception problem versus what was an actual skill set thing that you could work on and really compartmentalize between the two of them so that I can be clearer about who I am and how I wanted to show up and not just on the outside try to emulate a certain style of leadership or how you would speak or show up to try to fit in. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So perception versus actual leadership skill sets. What exactly does that mean? Well, I think there's this idea that, right, like, and and I think there's been quite a bit of conversation and evolution around this in, in corporate America as well in recent years, where the strongest leaders or the people who will get it done are usually the ones that are loudest or the most aggressive or bulldog, like any number of, right, analogies or names that you have or archetypes you have around that. And I had to really sit down and think about, is that me? Those that come natural to me, what does it take for me to even 
be like that. And what I realized in those conversations and processes was that for me to even pretend like somebody I am not, it takes so much energy away, right? In your, in your presence, your brain space and, and what kinds of things you're worrying about that it actually takes time and space away from the things that I should be thinking about to do good work and be an impactful member of that company. So it only made sense that I try to come back to like, who are you as a person and what kinds of things actually make you feel steady enough on your feet, no matter what the context is and the audiences and, and the conversations change around you to have to worry less about that part of it, but really show up like who you are. I think all of that kind of the introspection and skill set building and, and having enough of a practice around that really built the confidence and resilience around it, Sharon, to, to be able to say, why now? Because I think I have to go through some stuff again as a grown up in terms of what does it mean to fit in and what it takes to be able to fit in and what's the cost of doing that versus figuring out finally at age 41, you do not have to be the same as everybody else to belong somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you talk because as someone who's very much like you, we're both female and we're both Asian. I actually encounter that a lot of what's my leadership style, right? And how can I show up authentically as who I am, but still be seen as being as powerful or as credible or as believable as someone who's maybe male or white or loud or just different from who I naturally am. And it's 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 a little it's very validating hearing it coming from you, but also just fascinating too, because it is very much like being that 13-year-old again of having all these experiences that have shaped you and being very used to people around you behaving a certain way and then diving in and thinking that you're wearing the right outfit, but yeah. you're actually doing <laughs> totally. it for all the wrong reasons. Totally. <laughs> but but like I feel like there is kind of like a double standard. To be clear, there are standards on men on how you need to dress or sure. to beard or not to beard, all those things. But we're a lot harsher on women. To be clear. And yeah. I remember during yeah. like the 08 election with Hillary and Obama during the primary, just like the amount of scrutiny that Hillary would come under versus Obama. And they were both minorities, right? And it right. was, I right. remember having this argument with society. I was like, well, we're actually a more sexist society than we are a racist society. And that, that, that statement might get me in trouble, but, but back in 08, that's how I felt. And that's how I knew Obama stood a better chance of winning than Hillary, right? There was, it was a very loaded decision. And why I had my primary vote, and I had a lot of arguments with friends. But I guess the question is, I mean, Minjay, sometimes we ask people, what are the types of things you do to fit in? And people can't see you, but you have arguably one of the most awesome haircuts that you pull off. You're literally <laughs> wearing your frames are sunglasses. I read an article, you have sunglasses that you converted to glasses, and you totally Correct. own it. So you almost do the opposite. Yeah. The question is, was, what do you do to fit in? But I guess the question is, why do you make the choices you choose to not look, to not have that fit in look? Like, how do you, That's you have, you have so much confidence to do that. I, I don't even know how you do that. Because <laughs> I can't. Well, I, okay. So first of all, the haircut thing, it, it took me like five years to get to five or six years to get to my current version. Again, right. It's, it's almost like hairstyle resilience building, or you kind of boil the water slowly with the frog in it kind of a thing where I just had this sense of like, 
when I had my second kid six years ago, I wanted to, there was like this really weird desire to do something different. And it kind of came through in my look. And so I remember going to the hair salon and I asked for an uneven haircut. And then it was a disaster because this person literally cut one side, one length and the other side, other length. And I came home and my husband's like, what did you do to yourself? So I had to find a new person who had been really wonderful since then. Like, And so she just kind of took me one by one by one by one. And so initially it was a stylish uneven cut. And then over time, I was just, fuck it, just shave it. And so it has been a process. But I guess to answer your question, and I'm honestly kind of thinking out loud here because I've never actually been asked this question before. I think there's a... Hang on. So do people like dance around that issue? I mean, I kind of did when I first met you. I was like, I shouldn't say anything. But then literally preparing for this conversation, I Googled you a few times and I read an article where the reporter, I think it was like in New York Magazine or something, they point blank asked. Like that was like the premise of the article. But do people people just shy away from it? It either comes in the form of that's cool or... I mean, that's a whole other story. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other dimension of being othered. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't really come up often other than people who compliment, which is very nice. I think there's an element to the look in itself that is perhaps screaming, see me as who I am, or don't put me in a box kind of a thing. And so I wonder if there's a little bit of that that is subconsciously coming through. And so, I mean, I feel very comfortable, even though it is a very unusual look. And it comes up in my kids' schools too. I live in Denver, Colorado, and it's not the most diverse place. There's a 2% Asian population and we're very segregated. So it would be easy to point me out, let alone (laughs) with the haircut and everything. So I do get questions from my kids' friends and things like that and try to kind of use the opportunity to be like, people all are born differently and you can choose to look differently and be different and kind of handle it that way. But I, I do have to say there are times that this look has not necessarily been complimented as like, wow, you're, it's your style and you own it because it's different. Has it ever had negative consequences then? Oh, yes. I mean, more in terms of what people say that, again, makes me feel like I'm the 13-year-old immigrant just landed here and I don't know what, what's going on. So in in... I don't mean to make Colorado sound bad. Like it's just my personal experience. It's a wonderful place, but I, I went to the stock show. That's a really big deal here in Colorado. Every January, all parts of the country come together and check out, right? The livelihood of what's going on and their cows and sheep and everything. And it was a really wonderful experience for my family to go be able to experience that because we, we didn't have that in San Francisco. We didn't have it in DC, but very different set of people who may not have seen someone like me ever. And so I just remember walking through that crowd at first feeling like I stick out, but suddenly in a not great way. And then I remember one of the attendants, he shouted so loudly, like in the hallway to his own family, but for everybody to hear, oh my God, look, look at that woman's hair. Why is she blah, 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 right? And my kids felt the shame in that experience. So it's like you learn to brush that off, but it's it still kind of brings you back to the place of like, oh shit. Well, the, and that's the, you brought up your kids because as you were telling that story, the 13-year-old in me yeah. was cringing, not as your kid, yeah. but as the 13-year-old. And we find ourselves flashing back to that. I'm sure all of us yes. do. Like, 
you just want to fit in. You don't want to be called out. And now, yes, I am a more confident adult. I don't care if I have a big beard. I don't, I care less, right? Because I'm more confident in my own skin. But there are so many things and choices we do to kind of avoid the exhaustion of criticism and looks and sideways stares. And it's less about your hair, right? But it's like, how do you manage the exhaustion? Or, or is, are, you, are you becoming more and more immune to it the longer you go? Well, I was actually just thinking about this while you were unpacking it. Because yes, it was a stock show and I ran into a lot of people that I don't normally see. And I was a minority in a lot of different senses. But the stock show could have easily been a company culture that doesn't right, embrace difference. And so there's really no, no difference. It just happened to be the context. It, I think the most important thing maybe about that story is that the perhaps as I was growing up and I'm right, all of us are seeking for communities, whether it's your work or families or friends, like hopefully people who see you for who you are and validate your experiences and for you to have enough of that in your life so that if you ever encounter these moments of otherness, you be able to still quickly recover and come back to who you are. I mean, I feel strange saying even recover, but but that's what happens, right? And so I think it's that, is trying to build enough resilience actually then in my relationships and not just in me to be able to have people who stand with me. And that example that I just told you about, so the kids and I had a conversation about that. Why did that feel like that? And why, why did that happen? And so try to like have real-time conversations with them too. Also that some of the experiences they frankly haven't had because of the the fortune of being, they're like three quarters Korean. So they, they look Asian, but they're in a largely upper middle class, like school and all that. But trying to expose them to these are the kinds of things that could still happen to you. Don't feel like, right, like you you are in this bubble and you don't see this happen. You don't see this happen to your friends. But if your context switches, it can just as easily switch, unfortunately, in how people see you and treat you. I want to ask a question about kids because something I've been coming, we're, we're about this, we're at the same age. We're actually both 41. And the older I get, oh, how old are your kids, Minjay? 11 and six. Okay. So, yeah, yeah I, I've got a five year old girl. And as I get older, I'm starting to realize, and even my wife and I, we talk about the things our parents did. We compare notes on the things that, oh, yeah, did your mom ever do that? Did your dad? Ever? And like, at the same time, I start to reflect on the things I'm doing that my kid is going to be talking about 40 years from yeah, now. Yeah, 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 totally. And it's it's weird because it almost becomes an out-of-body experience sometimes like, like when either I'm getting on to her or playing with her or something, and then my wife will comment on it later that night or give me the sideways glance, and I do the same to her. <laughs> <laughs> what are – because it's funny. When you were talking about your parents earlier, I was like, oh, I wonder how she translates that to how – she is a parent. And then you kind of told the story of your kids with you at the stock show. So what are what are the things? What would your kids say about you? What would your kids say that they're learning or they're seeing from you? I have to say, it's one of those things that's hard to... I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not like we have explicit conversations about... <laughs> what did you so, learn from yeah, exactly. this <laughs> Yes, Lillian and Evelyn, let's have a quarterly parental review of... <laughs> uh, the OKRs, the family yeah, exactly. OKRs. <laughs> so it's, it's not like that, that in which this comes out, but I think it's more about my husband, Andrew, and I kind of reading into and reflecting on our interactions to see, are we 
doing the right things or at least are we trying you know like <laughs> how bad are we screwing this up <laughs> yeah, exactly it's like whoa <laughs> and it's just top of mind because we've been talking about this a lot as a family but like coming into this year so like i mentioned andrew's half korean and i'm fully korean so we have very similar but also different experiences of what it's like to be othered because he had lived in korea actually as a mixed race child and so oh, there it's like a different kind yeah of, because they're, right? they're, they're really tolerant over there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a different kind of sameness to be clear when i said over there i meant all of asia so i'm offending oh. all of asia not just korea. Well, there you go <laughs> so but it brings the it triggers the same kind of memories and feelings and, and the experiences so we bring that quite a bit into our conversations or at least in reflection of how we talk about about our experiences or what's going on out there in the world with the kids. And one of the things that happened more recently was, well, one, I think the kids are right. Also feeling the pressure of everything that we're dealing with the pandemic and going to school or not and all of that. Plus I would say my older kid is, I describe her as like an emotional sponge. She's very, very, very empathetic. She's hyper aware of her spidey sense is basically like how are other people feeling? And I want to make them feel better, which I think is a really, really great place to start from. But as, as is all of, us as human beings, like what makes us a potentially a great asset to the society is also potentially the blind spot. So for her, as she's now getting into the preteen years, like she, I see her taking on the burden of, of that. So what do you do with it? And so perhaps there too, a little bit of maybe projecting myself onto it, we think a lot about how do we build resilience around her superpower and make that into as much possible a positive impact for her and those around her and for her not to feel like I am overwhelmed by right like what I see and feel so we right around right the the riot that happened at the capitol she was feeling it quite a bit she just the, the whole thing like burden of the world and just being stuck inside and so she she was kind of depressed. And so we we started to talk about unpacking a little bit of the why and what are you feeling? What are the things that are making you feel this way? And part of that came out as watching the, the events unfolding on January 6th. Like, I don't understand how people could act this way, you know, towards other people and, and just the a little bit of, I think, what she was starting to recognize as indignance within herself, but not necessarily knowing how to express it. So we spent some time just honestly just talking it out so that you have a space to write. You got to, everybody needs a space to dump your feelings. But she came back from school the next day and there were some conversations at the school just about what happened and how do we show up as a society and what are the implications. And she she came back and told us that she spoke up in front of the entire lower school and, and fifth grade, just talking about what she observed and how she feels about the world in which that some people are treated differently because of their background. And, and she had a whole point of view. And that was... I think Raman to say like your the report card analogy, it was actually a, a good sign, right? It was like, oh man, I don't know exactly what she said, but the fact that she felt first and foremost supported by her school community and second of all, have had the opportunity to maybe hash that out a little bit with us to 
compartmentalize or process her feelings to be able to then articulate her point of view in such a way to be heard and influence other people. That was something else. So yeah, it, it's not about having the right answer or the wrong no, answer. It's about no. asking the question. Yeah. yeah. Confronting yeah. it. Yeah. And the fact that she felt so empowered to do it. Yeah. She, you know, she was in a position to be able to to speak up and that she knew she would be heard by speaking up. Yeah, that's really interesting. So going back to culture for a second, because mm-hmm. three quarters Korean, right? Yeah. So <laughs> your husband's half half. How important is culture for both? Wait, of what's you? the other half? Oh yeah, what's the other half? I kind of assumed white, but that's funny. Well, yes, white, but if you trace the ancestry, his family's been America since America became America. <laughs> and before that, I believe Norway is where yeah. Interesting. And then so Orm, guys- Orms is like Orm Orm apparently in Norwegian is serpent. And then the S got added at some point and fun fact. That's pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So you're Mrs. Serpent. There you go. I'm a pair actually, of uh, your name. Your name. I have a pair of Harry Potter pajama pants for House Slytherin, but only oh, because nice. like the S is like Segel. And I have my daughter convinced that that's why I have those pajama pants because it's S for Segel. Anyway. Oh, that is so awesome. I digress. Amazing. <laughs> I totally lost track of my question. I think I was going to ask you about culture or culture. passing that down to your children. Yes. Okay. This is an interesting topic. So as a bilingual person, and I actually really love learning languages. And so I've studied a bunch of different things. I completely see the value of first and foremost in language, but in other aspects, the immersive experience you can give to your child so that they can see the world bigger than just the thing that they're living with right now. But I got to tell you guys, like there's a huge barrier, psychological barrier for me to speak Korean with my children and therefore they don't speak Korean right now. They, they know like some words, but they Why? don't. Why do you think that is? If you know a therapist who can help me get over this, that'd be great. But I think it's because when I speak Korean, I revert right to my 13-year-old self, where I came with kind of the upbringing of don't speak unless you're spoken to, disappear into the background, always see be deferential. And a lot of those are built off of what is meant to be a positive and respective, respected and respectful culture. But for me, it played a role in my evolution of this person to that person being an immigrant fitting, like all that stuff that we talked about as a negative trait. Like it it came in my personal experience as I can't really live like that or bring that with me. And so I feel like I've done a lot of work to leave some of that behind and learn to speak up and XYZ, whatever. And so every time I I do speak Korean, which I do with my mom and sometimes with my brother, but I just become a different person. Yeah. It's so interesting. What does your, it's like an, I mean, there's more of an emotional thing there than just the classic. My parents didn't speak Hindi with us growing up and there's a bigger story there, but it mostly had to do with assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. Sure. But for you, because you came over at a different age, and does your husband, he doesn't speak Korean? No. So it's, yeah. I mean, so, so there have been like conversations about now he and like Billy wanting to go learn Korean together, which like all for it. But it is something that I carry with me that I'm like, oh man, like I could have just done that like myself here, but having and a lot of mixed feelings about that. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way with my own kids. Mm. My Chinese is not even good enough to teach anybody anything, but 
because my husband isn't Chinese and mm. it's up to me, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it almost adds that extra pressure. And because of that, there is a block. It's like, well, if it's up to me, like, then I can't do it. Like, I don't know. And so that's why I was digging into yours too, of like, what, you know, what, what makes that happen? Mm-hmm. Really we did that Sharon, during that Chinese New Year episode. I was trying to get, my daughter's half Chinese and Sharon and a few other past Chinese American guests. I wanted to ask about Chinese New Year's traditions, right? Because <laughs> I don't have any, right? Other than right. the few, because my wife is Chinese American. And one of the things I talked about was how my daughter, I bought my wife a really nice mahjong set on my first trip to China and brought it back. And we've never touched it, like seriously. And one of our guests, Alice, was like, you need to learn how to play mahjong with your daughter. And it kind of reminded me of that thing you said about your husband and your daughter wanting to learn Korean together. So, I mean, are there, what are the Korean things that you do? What are the Korean things that you are trying to bring into your household? And I, I literally am asking that because I'm trying to figure out what are the Indian things? What are the Chinese uh-huh. things to bring home? Yeah, yeah. So there are some cultural habits or milestones, right? So we we also do Lunar New Year. And then we've been trying to also do a Korean version of Thanksgiving, Chuseok. That's right around like September, October timeframe. And take that as a moment to like my mom gets hanbok, the traditional outfit for my girls from somebody that she knows, like there's like a whole like underground Korean, you know, ladies network, right? They can bring stuff. And so of course, of course, of course, yes. So they bring the new like hanbok for them every single year. So we get dressed up and then we do like sebe, which is your way of saying the, the new year greetings to your elders. And you usually do get Korea. We, we are less about the red envelopes, but like we do get money for it. So there are things like that, that we do. And then more of the everyday things. So there's actually two H-marts, 15 minutes from me, which is- I love awesome. H-mart. It is, yes. it is my happy place. Oh yes. my God. I love H-mart too. Yeah. I know. It's, it's so the good. best. It's, it's honestly the best. So again, like before COVID time, like I would bring the girls with me and then we would just, we probably spent three hours there every time, <laughs> giving them like half my paycheck, just going over <laughs> like things I used to eat. But that's been such an interesting- interesting kind of shared experiences too, because Andrew and I try not to junk food and snack too much these days, having reached our 40s. But we sometimes get these like Korean snacks. And then so I remember I brought something back last time. And it's these like kind of walnut, not donuts, but it's like, kind of pancakey on the outside inside it's red bean paste, but it also has walnut bits. And Usually, in my context of knowing this snack is like at the highway stops in Korea, they have a bunch of like noodle shops and things like that. So it kind of gets pressed out of this waffle maker kind of a thing in small circles. So anyway, it's a very like specific kind of snack. So I brought that back and then I don't think Andrew's had that in years. And so he took a bite of it and he was like, he was like, you could kind of see that scene from like Ratatouille, you know, where like you get sucked right into the memory. (laughs) Yeah. And he just took a pause. He's like, oh, I remember this. And so there are things like that, that we even still discover about each other outside of the kids part of it, of things that we have in common because Andrew grew up between Korea, US and Norway. And I have that part of it too, that we we find out we're like, oh, yeah, like, totally. It's so funny, because I feel like we all want to be healthy parents. And my parents were the same way. But the ethnic junk food totally gets a yeah. pass because oh, yeah. it's a cultural lesson. Here, yes, have this true. massive fried Indian thing or yeah. this Indian sweet yeah. that's going to give you diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> it's cultural. 
Yeah. Like every time I walk into an Asian supermarket, right. I'm like stuffing the the shopping cart with anything with sugar, anything that's frosted. It's all, but yeah, it's all in service of passing down traditions. But it's like, Oh, it's, it's made out of rice. So it's great. (laughs) In K town in Manhattan, near one of my old offices, there's this amazing Korean coffee shop called grace. Mm. And they have, God, what I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but like the Korean donut is I mean, that's literally how they market it at this Korean coffee shop. Have hook something. And yeah, it's the best. And it's hot yes, I, maybe. Yeah. 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 Oh, shit, Wait, man. What's, yeah. what's special about this donut? Like, what's inside it or what's it made of? Oh, it's, I mean, happiness. It's, <laughs> <laughs> <K-tow>. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the same concept, the red bean paste and all of that, but it's slightly fried as well as. Yeah, we're just going to have to meet there when the pandemic. Yeah, 100,000%. I keep thinking about, I forget what it's called, but it's usually shaped like a fish and it's there's like red bean or there's custard. Oh, yes, pungapang. Yeah. 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 That's literally like a fish, fish bread is what it's called. But that's, and there's like an ice cream version of that too. It looks exactly the same, except it has a layer of vanilla ice cream. Now this is a different podcast. That's one of my favorites. It, it kind of, it, we eventually <laughs> devolve into food. <laughs> Great. As we should. <laughs> so Minjay, we've covered a lot of ground, but because you are similar and different from that young woman coming over, right? To not just being in Canada or in Korea, but also Canada. What advice would you give your younger self if you could send her a message? Gosh, I mean, this this sounds very simple, but I think the only thing I might do if I could, right, in the, in one of those movies or whatever, you appear as yourself and then you quickly disappear and you're like, wait, did that just happen? Like, I would maybe tell her it's all going to work out. That's not an advice. That's not a you got to do this thing or you got to go, you know, meet this person. But I think honestly, back then, what I needed the most was some signs of you're doing the right things or this is going to be okay. And I obviously had plenty of that to have made it to this point. But I think, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation around this topic, but it's very hard for your parents in in an immigrant situation to validate your experience and encourage you and help you in certain ways other than obviously the the support they're giving you in the best way possible. So I sometimes felt very alone, but was motivated, right, to like, make something out of it. So I think that's maybe the one thing I would give more of myself, the younger self. That's a very thoughtful response. It's kind of, I was with you in that room when you were talking about being held back, and kind of being in a situation where you had to advocate for yourself, because because your parents only knew so much about what they could do or, or, or things like that. So that's, that's really good advice. Well, we've covered a ton of ground. And one thing we do at the end of each of our episodes is a speed round. Ooh, questions. Okay. Are you ready for speed round? Let's do it. Let's do it. Right. Wrong answer. No one's ever ready for speed round. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, confidence. Confidence always makes you feel like you're doing the right things. <laughs> you got it. You got this, girl. You got it. Okay. All right. What is one thing about you that no one expects? I am an introvert. INFJ. I huh. do not expect that. I read that in your fun facts as well, and I have not seen that. <laughs> like total, 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 total introvert. Like I need, I shut down. Like I, I need my own 
time, space, like not even family. I just have to like go decompress. That would be my natural state if, you know, I didn't have to interact with people <laughs> to, to live. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Seriously. I literally just want to go curl up into a ball and read a comic book. After yep. What's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Okay. The most visceral answer to this was when I watched Black Swan. Do you guys remember that movie? Yeah. You know, yeah. With Natalie yeah. Portman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That I movie watched- gave me nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you know, you stop me if you do not go here, but it's very like dark visceral movie, right? I want, I remember watching that maybe like months after I had my first child. So this is like 10, 11 years ago. Right. And I struggled quite a bit. Like I didn't know how to be a good mom. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't necessarily one of those people who also was like, I, I have to be a mom and that's my purpose in life. And like, there were a lot of compl- complicated feelings about being a mom, not to mention the fact that you're sleep deprived, right? All of that stuff. So I just remember watching that movie and sobbing and feeling like, I feel you, Natalie Portman. Like the, the split personality between, right? When she's wearing white and she's this, and when she's wearing the black, I can't remember the character's names, but just the switching of who you are, depending on how you feel and and be able to also carry all of that, for me, landed in a very specific way in the context of being a mother for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I totally feel you on that. There's just a lot. There's so much. When it comes to new motherhood, I feel like we could do a totally different podcast on that. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. So much, just so much on that. So I'd like to ask you about food. I bet you have a really good answer for this one. Let's do it. What What is your favorite mom dish? <sighs> Ooh. <laughs> she's 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 a very versatile lady in the kitchen. I have to say, <laughs> she's gonna be mad at me for saying this, but I actually really love it when she makes us rice kim, which is the dry seaweed, and then like kimchi. <laughs> But why, wait, why would she be mad for you saying that? I'm guessing because she has all these other like, yeah, exactly. like it, it would be yeah. exactly. Yeah. It would be like, what's the favorite dish of this fancy restaurant? And I'll be like, I love their bread. Right. 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 <laughs> but honestly, it's the best. It's yes. comfort food. I get it. Yes. I want to ask the question a different way because you're a mom. We've talked a lot about your momness. What's your mom dish? Because we're creating our kids mom mm. dishes now. My mom dish. Let's see. And it's less about your go-to. It's the one that your kids demand, the ones that they like. Yeah. So over the years, actually, my husband has become the MVP in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) To see the theme here, I'm like outsourcing basically all the cooking to other people because they're better at it. I think the things that I make that the kids like are some sort of a noodle soup. Honestly, my family could just live on noodles. And yeah. and so we make like pho for breakfast and ramen, udon, like you name it. So and yeah. do you do it from scratch or do you do it oh, from no. like no girl? Oh, okay. No. Okay. <laughs> I was like, you yes. are super mom. Dude, you got an H R. Go to the noodle yeah, aisle. Exactly. HR. Exactly. Stop Everything up. comes in a bag. Yeah. <laughs> In the pandemic, there's an H-Mart 20 minutes from us. We've gone, but we can't go as frequently as we used to. It's a planned event. And it's like, stock up on all the Asian. We're having an Asian week at the house. I know. I would take a cart in there, and then I have to come out with two carts, because by the time they bagged it, like I can't fit it into one cart kind of a situation. That's awesome. Yeah. What is your least favorite food? Ooh, I don't think I'm a big fan of like licorice kind of flavors. Yeah. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Hmm. 
This is a good question. <laughs> I I would actually like to see. I mean, not just because you said it before, but I would like to see what my mom says if you put her on the podcast. Because <laughs> she's so like she's very like easygoing, just gentle soul, and gets along with everybody. And I know she has lots of opinions about stuff, but she doesn't often volunteer it. So I wonder what are the kinds of questions that are actually going to bring that out. Yeah. Yeah. We should do that. Let's get her on and interview her. <laughs> ask her all the hard questions. <laughs> yes. What does being a modern minority mean to you? I love that term, by the way. So great job. Kudos to you guys. I think for me, this means, to me, being modern signals a bit of change, but not like you now go from this thing to that thing and we're done. But I feel like there's a constant sense of evolving and, and merging and figuring it out. And so it's not a done process. So it, to me, feels like it's still very much being defined, for me at least. But it, primarily, I think it, it means being unapologetic. Because for you to be able to evolve, change, figure out, and whatever version of the best of yourself that you'd like to be is requires courage and, and uncompromising parts about you that will stand out. Yeah. That's a great answer. Thank you. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun. I kind of, so much fun. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I could just talk to you guys all day, honestly. <laughs> Our next sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hello. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And keep being you and keep doing you. That's. I'm looking forward to more conversations. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you so much for having me here. Really appreciate it. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. We got ourselves as a country into this more or less dichotomy somehow. Should we have more policing or should we have less policing? Should we defund or abolish? And it was just not a useful conversation because it's not where most people are. The truth is people want a different and better. People on the left and the right, they want to be safe. They know that the current system is not set up for that, particularly not for minoritized communities. So what we're proposing is something that's different and better. I mean, there's no way to say this except that the current policing structure in America was created in a different time and for a different purpose than what's needed now. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.